right. Well, I'm very excited about this next interview because if you know, I knew I know Dave Popkin, I know Gary Cohen, I know the circuit of New Jersey basketball through my connection with Seton Hall basketball. But let's find out what's going on on the Rutgers side because I got the former coach of Rutgers, Gary Waters. Gary, thanks for joining me tonight. Well, thanks, Alex. It's great to be here with you. We're going to talk about your book, 10 Principles of a Character Coach. But when I saw how connected you were to Jersey and that you were part of Rutgers, I had to bring you on. And I'm like, what perfect timing? Because, yes, it is the rivalry between Seton Hall and Rutgers reinvigorated at the rack. So before the game starts, I wanted to get your take on, you know, this rivalry, your moments that you remember from being coached during those years. Oh, those are some very, very special years, Alex. I mean, it was very competitive. The game was well attended. People were excited. They were all looking forward to it, and it was a great rivalry. And we, and I, when I say highly competitive, each game went down to the last minutes. And so, you know, any fondest things? Obviously, uh, it, so I'm I'm a little too young to have followed that rivalry back then. So fill us in on what what exactly happened. Now I believe you both were in the same conference. Is that correct? Yes, at the time we were both in the Big East. And it was the Big East was really competitive during that time, and the games went uh, went you know like normal. You know, every started out tough. Everyone's playing extremely hard. Then it gets down to the last moments, and it's uh, it's a shot or it's a situation to determine who's going to win the contest. So it, it was some great times. All right, well, I know you went out to Cleveland State University, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the campus I had seen. Uh, on my way to like in, you know progressive field when I saw the then Indians if you will and I was like I love this campus but you were there for a long time you made a name out there uh, what was that like transitioning from New Jersey basketball to Ohio? Well, you know I, I came from Ohio, uh, Alex. If you don't if you remember that I was at I was the coach at at Kent State before I took the Rutgers job. And, and Kent State is about uh, forty minutes outside of. Out, outside of Cleveland. So, I mean, I had ties there. I had connections, and uh, and we had done extremely well at Kent State. and went to the NCAA a couple of times, and, and that's where I first got my name in coaching was at Kent State. And then, and then you made a name for yourself at Cleveland State University as well. So tell us about that part because, I mean, that's where many people talk about you. They, they know you from there. Well, you know, because that was the last place I was at, and I retired from Cleveland State. But let me tell you this, it, uh, you know, like at Kent State, we, we made it to the NCAA. We, we, we upset some very special people during in, in that first round. Like at Kent State, we Indiana was number five in the country. We upset them. And then when I was at Cleveland State, uh, we played Wake Forest, who was number number four or five, and we upset them in the first round. So, you know, we had some great upsets. Well, I know that you were you were a longtime coach over there, and anytime you hit the tournament, it is big. But if I may say so, when you go in and do these upsets with a school that you know are, are sort of a surprise, take us the mindset of that. I mean, the Dukes of the world and whatnot. But but we're talking about Ohio basketball. What's that like to put those schools out there, bring them there, and win with them? Oh yes, uh, and understand. 
you know, when you think about Rutgers at the time, they were in the Big East, and the Big East was the number one conference in America when we were in there. And so the, every game, every contest was highly competitive. And so, you, you, I mean, you had to compete each and every game. So as a mid-major school, not a, not a Power 5 school, we weren't a Power 5 school at the time, and uh, at, at, at Cleveland State, to go in and upset uh, like a Wake Forest in the NCAA, and when I was at Kent State, uh, a Power 5 school was Indiana to upset them, that was pretty big. They have been some of the biggest upsets in NCAA history. Now, I talk about adapting on here, and so – Going from these different conferences, feeling each conference out, is there a difference? And and any message to those who want to have those glory days at these different schools and as a young coach, I mean, what what advice would you have for them? Well, today uh, things are changing. You know that uh, with all the NILs, the, the portal and people transferring, you don't know you could be in one conference one, one year and the next year be in another conference. So you had to be prepared for that. But it, but during those years, it was highly competitive. And, uh, and not as many people transferred as they're doing today. So you you kept the same team. You competed hard each and every game. And, and your goal was to be as successful as you could become. So it's a different, it's a different day and age, Alex. And, you know, I think that uh, the, the younger generation just wants their name on, on the plaque, if you will. You... You fought hard, and so you wrote this book, uh, Ten Principles of a Character Coach. Tell us why. Is it because you're seeing these changes and you want to sort of get people's heads right, if you will? <laughs> That's good, Alex. You know, uh, when I, when I, when I re- went into retirement, I was, had to think about what I wanted to do. So I, you know, I came to the conclusion I wanted to write, and I wanted to write about my experience in college basketball. During those days, and that's in and that was in, uh, 2017. You know, uh, college basketball had some issues going on. There were there were some scandals and some things going on. So at that time, I said, let me write about this to give give coaches understanding of how they should carry themselves in college basketball. Well, and how coaches, how should coaches, and I think of an example, you know, Juwan Howard last year, unfortunately, punching out a Wisconsin assistant for no reason, but I feel like you're targeting that kind of behavior. Like, hey, you don't have to do that. You could coach even if through, through your frustrations almost, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And let me read something from the book that'll give you an idea what I was trying to capture when I started writing this book. Uh there's a there's a there's some st- there's a statement in here from Dr. James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. And Naismith believed that if you elect to be a coach, it was also your responsibility to be an advisor, a counselor, and a father figure, and to act at all times as an example to the athletes in your care. He he further said uh, that sports should develop character, foster patriotism, and instill ethical values that would serve participants well into later life. So when I, when I read that, I said, is that what we're truly doing in, in, in this sport today and in sports in general? And I came to the conclusion that we're missing out on some things, and we're, we're not keeping up the act that he wanted us to, to portray as coaches in this profession. 
You know, I'm reading now, speaking of a, a, a coaching legend as well, Mike Krzyzewski wrote, Gary has a written, a must-read that transcends any professional genre. The ten principles of a character coach establishes character and morality driven fundamental practice. I mean, this is Coach K talking about it. So what's that make you feel like? <laughs> well, it just makes me feel that, you know, people are noticing the importance of character. Let me give you an idea about that, Alex. This this past year, I I, I spoke at the Final Four at one at the conference during the Final Four, before the Final Four games, and and I literally spoke on the last day, the Monday. And when they asked me to speak, and they told me when I would speak, I in my mind I'm thinking, well, you know, it's the last day on Monday before the championship game, and I doubt if there's going to be many coaches there. But, you know, let me speak about the book and character and so on. So I get there, and there's almost two to 300 coaches in there. Now, let me tell you the uniqueness of that. See, they didn't have my name as the presenter of this particular workshop. They just have your name in a book that says he's going to present. Now, they all have the title of the subject matter, but they don't actually say who's doing it until you get there. So all those coaches came because they were concerned with character. And that, that that really was very special to me. Can you tell us any standouts that wanted to hear the winningest coach at Cleveland State University, what he had to say? Well, I don't know. See, they didn't know I was going to be speaking. See, they just knew a coach would be speaking. They knew the subject matter. And my, and my subject matter was a character-driven culture. So they, so all the coaches came and said, "Hey, I want to know about what kind of culture you have uh, if, if, if it's all built around character." Does the NIL hurt the culture? I feel like it does a little bit, right? Or does that inspire the athletes more? What are your thoughts on that? Well, at this time, it's a big question mark. You know, you don't know if they, how how difficult that will be to many players and coaches and so on because the coach now has to coach this type of player a player that's making many of them making more money than they're making. So now what are you going to do? And, and, and the other players on the team have to identify that, Hey, this player is on the team and he's making money and we're not. So there's a lot of question marks there, but I think before this thing comes to an end, they'll get it right. All right. I have to ask you this because there's a big coaching change, not so much in basketball, but in football, because you know, he's a multi-sport guy anyway, Deion Sanders as a coach, how are you looking at this and how he makes the transition and any character advice he should have going from Jackson State to now Colorado? Well, I mean, he's, that's a big jump. I mean, he's going all the way from one level to, a, to three levels higher. But he has the, you know, he has the, the what I call the, the, the temperament. He also has the, uh, the cliche behind him. Everyone knows who he is, so recruiting is going won't be as difficult for him as it would be for someone else. But at the same time, you still got to coach those games, and so. But you can't get so caught up in coaching that you fail to realize that you're an example to each and every one of those kids, and you got to lead them in the right direction. You know, you say you're retired, but I just feel like basketball in general, you never really retire. You get people's who want your ears. You have a website now, CoachWaters.com. So. In this post-coaching life, if you will, do you still feel like you're going to be coaching 
the coaches, meaning don't you still have the ear of, of those like, a, I don't know, like a Juwan Howard or like a, a Jerry Stackhouse, I think, who was the guy with the melted down, you know, the NBA legend who melted down a couple weeks ago. Do you still have these guys ear to say, hey, what you did the other night is in character? No, that's right. And, uh, and you know, and, and I'm still mentoring many coaches today. I also, the NABC, which is the National Association of Basketball Coaches, uh, selected me to be uh, the host of their podcast, which is called Guardians of the Game and uh, the NABC. So, you know, the coaches are still hearing from me. They're still hearing the importance of being a coach and, and what example you need to set out there as a leader in, the, in this profession. We're a couple months into this, uh, you know, new season now, and we're seeing changes all over your former Big East as well with Jay Wright out, Kevin Willer going to Maryland. UNC was right, you know, supposed to be this big school. Now they're, you know, they slipped a lot, you know, more than they expected to um, to start out. These changes going on, any advice for these coaches as they adapt to their new environment? Well, I tell you, you're exactly right. It is a new environment and it's a competitive environment. The only thing I can say if, if I give one thing is to be them, be who they are. Don't change them, who they are and what they do, but just make sure they're doing it for the right reasons. And when I say the right reasons, what I'm saying is be, a, be an example of character to your players so they can live their life the same way. Coach K retiring also, if it leaves a big, a big void in, in, in Duke. But is it fair to say that, or do we ha- should we have trust in the coaches that take over for legends, if you will? Well, you know, it's, it's going to take some time for them to get things on track. But many of the coaches that are coming in, like, for instance, uh, the coach at Duke, you know, he was under Coach K, so he learned a great deal from him. And so he'll take his example and move forward. But the newer coaches, they're, they they got to they gotta come in and, 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 and set a state and, and, and be as successful as they can. But they also, as I'm going to say again, and how important this is, for the, for the players out there today to understand that they have to be an example for these players. All right. Let, let's say you are enmeshed with New Jersey and Rutgers because, because you were coach at Rusker, Rutgers. So when you see a team like St. Peter's also excel like last year, how excited did that make you feel? Well, that made me feel great because think about it. That's another mid-major school competing against a power five school and doing well. And they competed against a couple of them and did well. So they're saying that the little guy can still have success in this profession with what's going on with the changes in conferences. You know, you, you got like the big, like the, the big 10, the, the, the conference that Rutgers is in, they're adding two new teams in about two years. So these conferences are going to be, what I call mega conference, large, large conferences. So uh, you 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 still have to get get it right. I can't let you go. You know, I, I want to talk to you for a whole while here because I love ta- picking your brain on all this. Because obviously Rutgers, who beat number what uh, they were ranked Indiana, now they're facing OSU tonight in basketball. And and Harper, you know what a, what a story that was last year for Rutgers. But I got to ask you, Big East basketball, I mean, you had UConn, you had Syracuse, you had Seton Hall, you had St. John's, you had Georgetown, you had Rutgers. I mean, that era at the Garden. Can you take us inside that as you were coaching those Big East tournaments? 
Oh, man, those were special times. And I don't know if you remember this, Alec. We took a team to the finals of the NIT, and back then the NIT was strong, really, really a strong tournament. And we played Michigan, and I tell you something, there were over 15,000 fans from New Jersey at that game, at the championship game. And that tells you how exciting it was back then. But playing in the Big East was really, really a special time. And playing in the Big East tournament, I mean, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better because it had, it had built itself up to be one of the best tournaments in America. Uh, Dave Popkins says, Quincy Doobie killed us. He just texted me that. So maybe you recognize that name. I guess you do. See, he, he would give me some historical prospect on the, on the rivalry as well as we go through the season here. But uh, who was your – that reminds me, who was your favorite player to coach? And I know you're going to say everybody, but any standouts? Well, you mean at Rutgers or period? Period also. Okay, uh, let's talk about at Rutgers. You know, I did coach Quincy Doobie, and uh, Quincy was a lottery pick for me in the NBA. And I tell you, he was one of the better shooters I've ever seen. And and, and many may say one of the best shooters in the New York area uh, to, to be able to perform like that. So, uh, and then you just received a call that said he, 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 took, he took it to them, but he took it to a lot of people, especially in the Big East. And so, see, now now you got me researching. I'm only 31, so I got to look back and, and check out those glory years <laughs> of 01. Well, my, you know, I coaching at Cleveland State, you said anyone. My last player I had there was uh, uh, Norris Cole, if you remember that, played for the Miami Heat, and they won two NBA titles. And he was, was a very good player also that I coached, and I thought did a great job during his playing time. Now, Cleveland State, you are the winningest coach there, and you had a lot of success there. So um, building off that, do you still have the ear at Cleveland State as well? Oh, yes, yes. And, I'm, and I went back a couple of times last year and spoke to, to the team and spoke to the athletic department just to have them understand the importance of, of being leaders in our community. And then I also, you know, talk to him about my book on character. <laughs> there you go. And that, that book, again, is 10 Principles of the Character Coach, if I'm not mistaken. And thanks to uh, Zach Heitling for set, setting all this up at Newman Communications. You know, I was very excited to get you on because I'm looking to build out the sports show and, and, and love having you on for this. Okay. I got to ask well, you. Let me, mention, go ahead. let me mention one other, Alex. Next year, my, my second book is coming out. And it's titled Coaching Millennials from a Character Perspective. And that book is all about my time at Rutgers. So you saw sort of the millennial, uh, and that'll be a very special book to talk about. Um, you, you saw that kind of, not attitude of millennials, but you saw that kind of energy at, at Rutgers. Is that why you wrote based on those experiences? Or what, what was that? That's exactly right, Alex. I, that was the time I had millennials. You know, I, I got a little taste of them at the, my my last year at uh, at Kent State, and then when I went on to Rutgers for those five years I was there, all the players in the program were millennials. So they gave me a lot of insight on on the behavior patterns of that generation. Wow, and that's sort of a warning shot to coaches today, is it not? Yes, yes, because you know, in the book, I, don't, I not only talk about 
uh, millennials because millennial is an extension. So uh, the group today is our extended, our considered extended millennials, meaning Generation Z. So I talk a little bit about them as well. All right, uh, Coach Waters, I'm a St. John's guy. I live a half a mile away. I didn't ever go to that school, but I they have my basketball heart. Don't tell Dave Popkin that, but they kind of do. Uh, you know, what, what I'm trying to say here is they coached, they recruited local for many years. And, and what's the advantage of local recruiting versus national slash global recruiting? I feel like everybody goes to Europe now for these big six-feet players, but it's the local guys that make it happen too. Yeah, you're exactly right. And uh, back in the day when when St. John's was really, really strong, now they're coming back. Mike Anderson is the coach there at St. John's, and he's doing a fabulous job. And he is also a character-driven coach. And so, you know, they're trying to get back. But and when they had their success, it was a whole different time frame. Now, what do I mean by that? If you remember, St. John's was strong and DePaul was strong during those those years. And they were strong because many of the kids stayed home from the areas, meaning the area in New York, to play in New York. Why? Because they could – and everyone says, well, was it the coaching? Was it this? No, they could get they, – they could live at home and, and, and get income to live at home, so they stayed home. Exactly. But look That's at what the, what, look what the impact they had, right? I mean, wow. Well, but see, what, what occurred was both St. John's and DePaul didn't have dormitories back in those days. So they could stay at home and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and get the money for staying at home and it could help their family, but they, they stayed home and participated. And how about you? What was your technique? Would you say you recruited local, global, national? What was your outlook? Well, I've always believed you gotta you gotta recruit within a fifty mile radius. You got local, you have to get the best players there. And when when I was in New Jersey, there were some great players there. Now Quincy was from New York, so I had to bring him from New York, but I did have a number of players from New Jersey. Let me ask you some local names. Wayne Zwagbound, does that name sound familiar at all? I don't know if you're familiar with New York basketball, by the way, but Well, but let me let me say say this, Alex. I'm a Midwesterner. And I came out east, and I learned a lot about Eastern basketball and the competitiveness in, at that in that area is there is none is there in my estimation there is none like it. So if if if, if you are a, a participant in in college basketball in the east, I mean it's some great basketball. Syracuse up there as well, like all these different schools here on the Eastern Seaboard. But I've got to ask you this because, you know, you were coaching uh, CSU at a time where LeBron James, right? So you were there at a time when James was around, wasn't around. So did that impact Cleveland State basketball where, you know, how LeBron did, where he was, what he was, you know, like was he going to stay with the – you know, Cavs, was he not? Like, what was all that experience like coaching in Cleveland during all that? Oh, well, that was a great time then because LeBron was in Cleveland and the city of Cleveland was, I mean, really live because he brought a lot to Cleveland. So when I would bring a recruit in and uh, in to, to go to Cleveland State, we would go down to the games and it would be unbelievable. So, you know, it, it, it was a great time, time period for Cleveland State basketball in Cleveland because LeBron was there at at, at, Cle- at the Cleveland Cavaliers. Did you ever get a chance to get him to talk to your team at all? Was that a possibility? Or? 
I didn't do that, but you know, I say I knew LeBron, LeBron because I was at Kent State, which is about thirty minutes from Akron, where he played at, uh, and so I got a chance to know him. I was at his practices. I knew I knew a lot about him. He came to many of our games, and if you remember, uh, Norris Cole played with him at the Miami Heat, so he came, so they came together. So you know, I got to have a good relationship with him, and his agent was a close friend of mine. So I. I, I got to know him extremely well. So uh, I didn't have him come speak to the team because I don't think that's what he exactly did. But at the time, he, he we did go and, and see him play a lot at, 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 uh, at, at, at the professional level. So that was really good for him and for us. Very cool. All right, I got to ask you this because the conference realignment is driving me crazy. We just touched on this. Doesn't that throw off a coach when either they're pushed into a new conference or they're taken out of a conference? Like, there's got to be some character needed to survive a change. <laughs> well, I think so. And it, but like I said earlier, the college basketball, college football, just the college scene itself has changed. And so the coaches today coming into the profession must make that change as well. And like you said, they're going from one – part of the country to the next. Think about it. In the Big Ten, you, you have like you, Rutgers and Maryland are in the Big Ten. They're Eastern schools. And now you're going to add Western schools to come there. So now what, what, what is the Big Ten going to look like? And what is, co- what is college athletics going to look like? Everyone's wondering. But, you know, the co- competition level is so high, especially in, in football and basketball, that they're, they're, they're trying to get to the highest level that they possibly can. I got to ask you, very true, I got to ask you about this because around the athletics department, even at Queens College, I noticed that paperwork was a thing. And is it at a level of D1 as well? Were you dealing with recruiting, with the scheduling, with the games, and paperwork? Like, was there, how much was on your plate each, each time you, uh, each place you were at? Well, the higher you go, I, I want to say the more it's on your plate, but I'm going to say the less because you have more people working for you. When you're at a, a like a Queens college or, or you know, or, or, or a mid-major school or even a division two, II, division three, whatever, you don't have as many people working in the department. So you got to do a lot of that yourself. And so uh, I can see how difficult that is, but the higher you go, the less you have to do in regards to, uh, being facilitated with all the different things. And so, I mean, you, you, you know them, you're on track with them, you understand what they're all about, but you, you, uh, you allocate resources and time and people to them, to these things. How many assistants would you have at each school? If you don't mind me asking, I'm curious. Well, at, uh, when, when we're at, let's say Rutgers, as an example, you would have three assistant coaches along along with a lot of uh, graduate assistants. You may have three or four graduate assistants. Then you have a basketball operation guy. Then you have a video coordinator. So you have a lot of people that's working to help you get this job done. Gotta love to hear that. And so with all that support, I mean, I'm sure for you, you made sure everyone knew their, you know, that they had a part in every success you had, right? Right, and and let me tell you something. Actually, you really felt good when you went on the floor to coach because you spent so much time, you know, uh, supervising and leading all these people to do their individual jobs 
that you you didn't have as much time to put into coaching on the court. So now when you did get on the court, you really gave it all you had. And that's that's what matters. And so uh, I've I've never really gotten a chance to talk to coaches one-on-one like this, so I'm very excited that you're able to join this podcast. Um, the communication in-game, I want to get to that real quick because you're always making hand signals, you know, coaches out there. So what exactly are you telling the players? I've always wanted to know. <laughs> well, you know, a good coach, to be honest with you, he's, he's solved that problem before he gets out on the floor. The, you work at that, you work on all those things at practice so they know exactly when you do something, they know how to respond and how to react to those things. Now, when you talk about hand signals, you may do that because that, oftentimes you're playing in hostile environments where people can't hear you. So what you got to do is you got to give signals so they can see to make sure that things are going on. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a number of things you talk about, but it's more that you're trying to communicate with them as they're out there on that play, playing surface. All right. So did you have a sore voice at all after every game did you find, or was your voice pretty restored? The, well, I mean, if you didn't holler that much, then you didn't do a great job at practice. That's true. <laughs> I'm saying to you, practice is the key to success. You know, I remember when Iverson said it's only practice. You remember that statement? And, and when he said that, it, it made me cringe inside because practice is the is, is the vital part of success out on the playing surface. When you get these guys understanding exactly what you know and what you're trying to bring forth, then they can demonstrate that out on the floor without you having to say a lot. I know. When they say those comments, it's really cringy. By the way, I mean, they did lose to Ohio State, did, Scarlet, did Rutgers, but only by a point. 67-66. So, so the matchup against St. Hall is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. Is that going to be at Rutgers? That will be at the rack, and uh, I, I will definitely be tuning uh, in. Seton Hall is in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's we'll have to see. It certainly looks like that. Um, Coach, oh, my gosh, I I love this. But I want to ask you this because you sound like you, you could still get on the floor and coach. So <laughs> why did you decide to step away? Well, you know, at the time uh, when I was coaching, the game was changing, as I indicated to you. And I was losing uh, quite a few of our players. In my last few years, I lost five players because of the transfer portal and the, and the transfer rules. So, if, you know, they all want to go higher to the next level. And so at that time, I just said to myself, you know, hey, I, you know, it, it's time for me to move on because, you know, I'm not getting the full – thrust of what I'm trying to do in this in this profession. So I decided at that time it was time for me to move on. Is the transfer porter good or bad for NCAA sports? Like I heard the other day a colleague and friend of mine said that 500 kids after the NFL, after the college football championship or whatever went to the portal. Is that a good or, or a bad thing for the NCAA? Well, I, I, if you're asking my opinion, I can't see it being a good thing. But you know, a lot of kids are going into the portal, getting different, going to different locations and having a great deal of success. But I also think there's a large portion of players that aren't having that success. Prime example, uh, at one point last year, there was almost a, over a thousand kids in the portal for college basketball. But there were only 800 destinations. Now, what's happening with the other 200? 
they have already left the school they they, they were at, and 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 that coach probably went on and and decided on a, on other players, so there, there was no more room to come back. So what what happens to that player? So that's my concern with the portal. Right, and, and so the portal collapse actually not only hurt the school that that the kid transferred from, but the kid himself. Yes, and that and see the whole thing is about the kid. And and we want to make sure, and that's why character is a vital part of the kid's life, because we want to make sure they're doing the right things and people are telling them the right things. And that's why when you get when, when that portal has come to existence, now you don't know what's happening. You don't know if people are are, are communicating with the player, even as as he's at that other school. You just don't know. So uh, it's a major concern in some cases. But as I said, many have, players have gone on and had success coming out of the port. I want to get into real quick the summers because I always thought, you know, the sport is, quote, unquote, a downtime. But, no, you guys were always recruited in the summer also, right? Oh, yes. That's the biggest part, especially in college basketball. You really have to recruit during the summer period. And it's, it's usually throughout July. They give you August off, but – you know, from from being out recruiting, but you're still communicating on the telephone and so on. So it's it's an ongoing process and it's a yearly process. And when I tell you recruiting is the lifeblood of college basketball, I truly believe that. Now you obviously went along the guidelines, but I I want to go back to the NIL. I feel like the NIL now will murk the guidelines for NCAA recruiting, right? Well, it's already worked. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, NCAA has been at this a long time. Eventually, they're going to get a handle on this. I don't think at the beginning stages they had the handle on it. And now it's here, and they've got to deal with it. I think they will get it right. I don't know how it will turn out. You know, it may be a point where everyone's giving to the NIL to help the school. I don't know. But, you know, eventually I think it'll all work out. I hate to ask if you had any kids, like, as you were watching the process, one outside, you know, rigged up things or whatever, but but did you notice kids that wanted to push the boundaries during the recruiting process? I would imagine you had to keep maybe some of them in line. Well, let me tell you this, Alex. I have some stories, and, you know, I, I just let me put it, leave it like that. I have some stories of the past about people pushing the boundary. And how were you able, I mean, you have character. That's why you were able to, to, to not give in to that, if you will, I guess you'd say. That's exactly right. And, and in, that, in, in my next book coming out, I talk a little bit about this particular subject within itself. And so you have to make sure you, you stay the course. You don't let it, it control you. You control it. I want to ask the big cat and the, the, the 800-pound elephant in the room when it comes to all of this because we, as watchers of the game, feel like the bigger schools get that advantage by tiptoeing the line. And as a coach who's been at this for years, I mean, did you notice the bigger schools tiptoeing? I mean, do you have any uh, – you don't have to tell us, but did you notice it? Well, just put it like this. It wasn't all pretty. Now, today with the NLI, you really don't have to do that as much, you know, because it's changing things. And that's why I say college basketball has changed. 
Well, this has been really, really insightful, and and this new book is is gonna s- sort of stay more on the on the Garden State basketball scene, right? So I can't wait to read that. Uh, well, it's gonna talk about my time at Rutgers and 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 the uh, the millennials I had during that time period, and the, and and how it all relates to our society today. So that that's what that book is all about, and I think parents will love it because. They have, they may have millennials in their household or Generation Z uh, young men or women. So they, they, they will want to listen to this and they will want to look at this to get a better understanding of what's happening in our society today. As a coach, before you put on that blazer and the suit and tie and everything, did you have an exhale moment? Like, okay, here we go. It's game day. We pre- we prepared the whole last few days for this. Like, did you have a big exhale before putting on the suit jacket and, and getting on that court for game time? Well, I don't know if you had a big exhale, Alex, but I do know you. you if you weren't, if you were not prepared. You were not going to have success. So when you went into that endeavor, you want to make sure that you had you had all the. The, the the T's crossed and the you know and and and, and the I's dotted that you were prepared to go out and and perform to your highest level and you had to make sure your players were at that level as well. As a tech guy, I have to ask this: Was there any film that got screwed up along the way that was like, oh my god, how do we not get this to to you know help us in our next game? Well, you didn't want that to happen because. Obviously, someone's going to have to pay for it, and you didn't want the players to pay for it. So you got to make sure you, that everyone's on track. And that's why, when you asked that question earlier, all the different responsibilities with, that a coach has to handle, you got to make sure you're on top of all that, and 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 your assistants are doing a great job. And that's one of the things I have to mention. I had great assistants during my time in the coaching profession, which which made my job a lot easier. I love watching kids that I saw play now assisting coaches like at Columbia and elsewhere. It's kind of cool to watch them grow into that role, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is to see see them go out and, and then they leave you. See, once your assistants leave you and go to a different place and have success, you love to see that as well. Oh, I meant kids you coach also. They become assistants as well down the road, right? Well, I'm getting that all the time. I'm getting players call me back and say, Coach, I'm coaching now, and give me some pointers or or tell me how they how their how how their situation is going. And I, I mean, it's 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 so rewarding to see and hear about the success that your players are having. I guess you could say a coach's work is never done, right? <laughs> You're exactly right, and and it go and and it's, and it's a lifetime process. You have to realize that. Your communication with your players and your coaching is a lifetime process. I will say congratulations on getting those kids to come back to you and tell you, hey, I got a coaching job now. So that's really exciting to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it's even more exciting to go and watch them perform as a coach. And you see, you may even see some of the things you used to do. You're like, oh, yeah, I just taught them that, you know, so that's pretty cool. Um, I hate to say I'm getting goosebumps, but this is this is getting me chilled, like just watching, listening now how proud you are of your kids and, and the guys you coach who become men, right? So that's the other part is how do you get these guys, kids into men? That's the key. And, and, and they have their own families and the whole process there. But, see, that's why character became a major part for me. 
because when you're when you're developing your players, you got to make sure that they understand that one day they're going to have to take what they learn today and use it in their families and and in their relationships later on. I'll tell you what, I'd love to have you on as the season continues back on, and, and we'll, we'll do this again. This was fun. We'd love to have you oh, back, yeah. Coach yeah. Gary Waters. Yeah, I, I, I love every minute as well. And count it in, I'm, you, you can call me anytime. Uh, right now I'm doing two things uh, that uh, is keeping me close to the game. I'm, uh, I'm on the NIT uh, selection committee. So for the teams that go to the NIT, I'm one of the people that help select the teams there. And I'm also doing a podcast called Guardians of the Game from the NABC. So, I mean, I'm still trying to stay connected to college basketball. All right. And CoachWaters.com is the website, right? Exactly right. All right. Well, we'll find you there. And are you on Twitter? i got to ask about the socials before I let you go. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Check me out. Right, we're going to do a Zoom next time. I'd love to get this on camera as well. That would be great. So let's do a Zoom next time. Definitely, definitely. And, and hey, Alex, this has been a great uh, conversation and interview, and, I'm, and I thank you for inviting me on. Loved having Coach Gary Waters. You might recognize the name from the Rutgers years here in the Tri-State area. Of course, winning as coach at Cleveland State University. And right now he is the author of the – well, remind me of the book one more time. Principles of a Character. Oh, no. Yeah, 10 Principles of a Character Coach. There you go. My damn screen timed out on me for a second. But 10, princ- 10 Principles of a Character Coach. There you go. Coach Waters, thanks again. Okay. I'm Alex Garrett. This has been uh, Alex Garrett's Sports Spotlight on Coach Gary Waters. That was... 